Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 13th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Last week I ranted a little bit about divisions in, in Christian identity, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, we were told by Paul of Tarsus there were that there must be heresies or sects amongst us, and in that manner, the anointed amongst us would become manifest. I expect sects. However, last week, my purpose was in explaining that if we agree on all of the major and important tenets of Scripture, the doctrines that we should have, and that Scripture insists that we must, then we can disagree on little things and not be at each other's throats. That is Christian understanding and good Christian deportment. Of course, if we disagree on the major things, then one or another of us is not a Christian and doesn't deserve brotherly love, understanding, or deportment. It, it really makes me laugh that a certain individual who operates a Christian identity forum would um, absolutely refuse to take a position or to even acknowledge the universalist nature of statements made by a certain, well, interloper from Chicago if you will. He absolutely refused to take a position one way or the other after I pressed him for some time on the issue. And yet, simply because I no longer care to have an audio feed at Christagenia, an RSS feed, he is very quick to condemn me. Well, that's one of those little divisions that shouldn't matter where somebody fails to stand up for the truths of Scripture. He strained down a gnat, but he swallowed a camel through two years ago when he absolutely refused to take a position against Eli James. He's very quick to disparage me as a Jew or a rabbi or some other crazy charge. And then he complains on his forum that whoever he disagrees with calls him names such as Jew and rabbi. So he's done the exact same thing he complains about. The, um, it, it's obvious to me that this clown has an agenda, and, and he certainly is a clown. His, um, his own behavior exposes him. He should have stood up for the truth when it mattered to stand up for the truth and not beat somebody over the head because of some petty, meaningless division. So he has proven what he is. Tonight we're going to discuss the, um, the prophecy of Habakkuk, or maybe it's Habakkuk, or maybe it's Habakkuk. I don't care. I'm going to say Habakkuk because I'm American and I speak Yankee. The Septuagint calls him Ambakum. That version of the name 
disguises its Hebrew meaning. I, I don't really know how they ar arrived at that transliteration. I'm going to ignore it and call the prophet Habakkuk for right or wrong. Habakkuk does not date himself or his prophecy. Rather, we must rely on the circumstances of the prophecy itself for a date. And of course, that cannot be absolutely reliable, since the prophets of the living God indeed foretold the future before it was inevitable that the events which they spoke of were going to happen. Habakkuk is written from a perspective which is oblivious to the Assyrian Empire or the Assyrian deportations of Israel and much of Judah which had occurred over several decades well into the 7th century B.C., at least six or seven decades. The fall of Nineveh to the Scythians, the Medes, the Persians, the Babylonians, and other tribes which joined in a federation against the Assyrians occurred right around 612 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar II ascended to the throne of Babylon in 605 B.C., from which time Babylon would acquire hegemony over the remaining portions of the old Assyrian Empire. This time period, from 612 B.C. to 605 B.C., seems to be the most appropriate but a proclamation that Yahweh would raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, here in verse 6 of Habakkuk chapter 1. While it is also possible that Assyria was simply ignored and the oracle uttered before that time, it does not seem likely that such a prophecy would be uttered during the reign of the good king Josiah, which lasted until about 609 B.C. It is much more likely that Habakkuk prophesied these things during the reigns of the three wicked kings who followed Josiah, who were Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. That's four kings. I understand that. Jehoahaz really only reigned for about three months. With these and other circumstances, both biblical and historical, the early portion of the rule of Jehoiakim, or Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim we'll call him, is the most likely candidate for the time of this prophecy, and that would be between 608 and 601 B.C. According to Strong's Concordance, the name Habakkuk is a reduplicated form of a word, Habak. So it's really Habak and Cook, two words put together. And the word Habak means well, well, one word reduplicated means the word and a portion of the word in succession put together. Let me put it that way. The word habak means to clasp. And this is appropriate because the prophet presents two things 
which must be grasped. Those are the first being a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem and the second a prophecy of the destruction of Babylon in turn for the Babylonians conquering all of the surrounding nations and lifting themselves up in pride. The prophet Habakkuk says nothing about himself, but he seems to have been a Levite connected to the service of music in the temple. And we say that only because, and it's circumstantial, because the third chapter of this prophecy is actually a song written after the manner of Psalm 7, the seventh psalm. And instructions are given for its performance. Both pieces, the seventh psalm and Habakkuk chapter 3, are said to be for Shigianoth or Shigayon. And, and that's right in the, the, the opening statement of Psalm 7. The psalm, in, in, in the King James English, it's Shigianoth in Habakkuk and Shigayon in the psalm. Both words are from the same Hebrew word, Strong's number 7692. And Strong says that Shigianoth is a rambling poem. However, more modern versions of the lexicon define the word I believe more precisely, to mean a wild, passionate song with rapid changes of rhythm. And while that's not entirely certain, related words, verbs related to the term shigianoth, mean to be mad, to be crazy, or to be raving, to be a lunatic, to be insane, as various lexicons define them. So, so the word shigianoth is certainly related to those ideas and most likely describes a musical tempo, the same as we see in Psalm number 7. Before the song, in chapter 3 of this prophecy, in the first two chapters, the reader is presented with a dialogue between the prophet and Yahweh God himself, where the prophet begins by crying out for justice and judgment against the sins of the people. So this is for two chapters. It's basically a dialogue. Most of the second chapter is simply the answer of God to the prophet. The prophet is portrayed as being the first to speak. Habakkuk, Chapter 1, verse 1. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. And with verse 2 begins a dialogue. The art of dialogue in the literature is most famous to the Greeks, but it's throughout, it's throughout the Hebrew prophets. Even though most translations do not give these dialogues any justice. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why? 
Dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. We probably want a pronoun there in English. There are they who raise up strife and contention. Evidently, a significant portion of the people have taken to rapacity and raising strife and contention with the law of Yahweh or those who desire to live by it. As we see it portrayed later, the wicked devouring the righteous. We must remain aware that other prophets have indicated that there is a significant population of Canaanites in Jerusalem, and both Jeremiah and Ezekiel are indicative of that situation and attribute many of the sins of the children of Judah to that very situation, which we see in those chapters of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and elsewhere throughout their prophecies. The Bible teaches us throughout its earliest chapters that so long as the Canaanites are permitted to live among the people of Israel, that the people would continue to follow after the ways of the Canaanites, that they would follow after their sins. This situation accounts for the entire history of Jerusalem and the real history of the ancient city can never be properly understood without the knowledge of this situation. Ezekiel says in his 16th chapter, again, the word of Yahweh came unto me saying, son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, thus saith Yahweh God, unto Jerusalem. Thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. And that was Yahweh's way through Ezekiel of portraying the race-mixing conditions which Jeremiah illustrates in Jeremiah chapter 2, which we won't elaborate upon here tonight, but we have plenty in the past. Verse 4, Habakkuk concludes, Therefore, the law is slacked, and judgment does never go forth, for the wicked do compass about the righteous. Therefore, wrong judgment proceeds. Isaiah describes some of the conditions inside Jerusalem and Judah over a hundred years before this time, where we find in chapter 3 of his prophecy, and I'll read from verse 1, For behold, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, does take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, the mighty man, and the man of war, the judge, and the prophet, and the prudent, and the ancient, the captain of fifty, and the honorable man, and the counselor, and the cunning artificer, and the eloquent orator. 
and I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. All of these other great men were taken away. Sort of the situation we have in Western governments today. And the people shall be oppressed, every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. The child shall behave himself proudly against the ancient, and the base against the honorable. When a man shall take hold of his brother, of the house of his father, saying, Thou hast clothing, be thou our ruler, and let this ruin be under thy hand. In that day shall he swear, saying, I will not be a healer, for in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people. For Jerusalem is ruined, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against Yahweh, to provoke the eyes of his glory. The show of their countenance does witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They were race-mixing. They hide it not, among other things. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall, not, they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. As for my people, children as opposed to the wicked, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O oh, my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err, and destroy the way of thy paths. Yahweh stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. Yahweh will enter into judgment with the ancients of the people, and the princes thereof. For you have eaten up the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. Isaiah wrote those words before Hezekiah had become king, circa 728. B.C. Yet even though Isaiah, in there and in many other places, had prophesied against Jerusalem and had also cast doom upon all Israel and Judah, who were consequently taken captive into Assyria, the prophet also foretold that Jerusalem itself would be preserved. This is seen in Isaiah chapter 31, where the word of Yahweh says, As birds flying, so will Yahweh of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it. And passing over, he will preserve it. Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel had deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have made unto you for a sin. After this preservation of Jerusalem, the people were given two opportunities to repent. The first during the revival of the repentant king Hezekiah, which is when this event, this preservation of Jerusalem as birds flying, had transpired. And again during the revival of the good king, Josiah. In Hezekiah's time, Jerusalem was saved from the Assyrian armies which had besieged it. And the people who witnessed such a great salvation, the extermination of tens of thousands of the Assyrian army, 
the people who witnessed such a great salvation still did not keep their obligations to their God. In the time of Josiah, the books of the law were recovered, and the idolatry was once again put to an end. But when Josiah died, the nation slipped immediately back to its old ways. In 2 Kings chapter 21, we read what happened when Hezekiah died around 699 B.C. and his son ruled in his place. And it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh, after the abominations of the heathen, whom Yahweh had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal, and made a grove, as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. Likewise, when Josiah died, around 609 B.C., his sons departed from his ways and did evil in the sight of the Lord, as it says of Jehoiakim in 2 Chronicles 36.5, and then of his son Jehoiachin, who was only eight years old when he ruled for a hundred days which we see in 2 Chronicles 36, 9, and it says, Jehoiachin was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem, and he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh. This situation indicates that there were appointed administrators, bureaucrats, who were really ruling the city, and who must have been the actual source of much of that evil. But his father, his grandfather, Josiah, who was a good king, had also come to rule at age eight. And evidently, the good that he was able to do was made possible only with the mercy of Yahweh. After Jehoiachin ruled King Nebuchadnezzar to take him hostage and replace him with Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. And it says in 2 Chronicles 36, 12, And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh his God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of Yahweh, as we have the order of the chapters in the prophecy of Jeremiah, in the King James Version, because it's drastically different in the Septuagint, the prophet addresses Zedekiah throughout the entire later 30, later 30 chapters of his book. The Bible is history, before we get back to Habakkuk. The Bible is history cannot be disputed. There was a There was discovered a tablet by archaeologists upon which are recorded some of the chronicles of the Babylonian kings. 
This tablet is described and its surviving portion is translated on pages 563 and 564 of ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, a book which was edited by James B. Pritchard and published by Princeton University Press in 1969. Under a heading on this tablet of Nebuchadnezzar, which marks year seven, month Kislimu, the tablet reads thus, the king of Akkad, which was a title that the Babylonian kings were using in their inscriptions, the king of Akkad moved his army into Hattiland, laid siege to the city of Judah, and the king took the city on the second day of the month Adaro. He appointed in it a new king of his liking, took heavy booty from it, and brought it into Babylon. <laughs> brought the booty, the loot. This is certainly a Babylonian record corresponding to the text of 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 6 and 7, where it speaks of the end of the reign of Jehoiakim. And it says, against him came up the Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters to carry him to Babylon and put somebody else in his place, as the inscription says. The Nebuchadnezzar also carried of the vessels of the house of Yahweh to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. And from there it was Jehoiachin who was the king, and after that, Zedekiah. And they were appointed by Nebuchadnezzar, as it says, in the inscription. The next verse of Habakkuk begins Yahweh's answer to the cries of the prophet, which we see in verses 2 through 4. The next verse is verse 5. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously for I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. Now, among the heathen should rightfully be among the nations, as the word should have been translated, where Yahweh here is certainly not addressing the heathen. The vast majority of the children of Israel had already been dispersed or captive by the Assyrians. This also, and, and they would be ye among the nations. This also seems to indicate that Habakkuk himself may be one of those among the nations, because it's him making the appeal. It's he who Yahweh is answering. And possibly Habakkuk was already taken captive to Babylon. Now that's a conjecture, it can't be proven, but it must be considered. Many of the chief men of Judah were taken to Babylon as hostages much earlier than the captivity. The prophet Daniel, as a young man, was notable among them. 
Now, if that is the case, then the instructions for the performance of the song in chapter 3 would seem to be superficial, yet the possibility must remain open for for consideration. And many psalms were composed by people in the captivity, especially the psalms of Asaph. Verse 6, the thing that Yahweh is going to work in their days. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. Now let me say that the language here, that the nations in verse 5 would not believe the work which Yahweh is about to perform, also tend to point to the fact that Habakkuk's prophecy is given before Nebuchadnezzar took the throne and after the Assyrians had already fallen. There was a seven-year gap in that time where it wasn't clear which of the, um, the nations of Mesopotamia was going to come to the hegemony over the ancient Assyrian Empire if any of them came to it. The Scythians were very powerful at this time, so were the Medes, and so were the Babylonians. So this, I believe, points to the, um, <clears throat> the chronology for the Habakkuk's prophecy, which we have given, that it was probably between 612 and 605 B.C. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Judah would have fared better under the laws of Yahweh, but because they did not abide in the laws of God, they will be subject to tyrants. That's inevitable whenever man rejects the laws of God, that we will be subject to tyrants. When Josiah died, it is evident that at the first, the pharaoh of Egypt had sought to exert influence over Judah. And 2 Chronicles, chapter 36 states, Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king and his father stead in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was twenty and three years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And the king of Egypt put him down at Jerusalem and condemned the land, meaning taxed it, and condemned the land in a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah, and Jerusalem, <clears throat> excuse me, and turned his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho took Jehoahaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. After the fall of Assyria, there was a struggle for hegemony between the Egyptians and the Babylonians, and the Babylonians prevailed. We then read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36 that Jehoiakim, 
was twenty and five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in fetters and carried him to Babylon. But there is more interaction between Jehoiakim and the Babylonians than this, which two chronicles did not record. Earlier in Jehoiakim's rule, he was put under tribute by Nebuchadnezzar. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 23, chapters 23 and 24, that Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zebudah, the daughter of Pediah of Rumah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his fathers had done. In his days, the Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And Yahweh sent against him, Bands of the Chaldees, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the children of Ammon, and set them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by his servants the prophets. Habakkuk must have been one of these prophets, and therefore it is evident that his prophecy must have been from the earlier portion of Jehoiakim's rule during the first eight years before Nebuchadnezzar came to put him under tribute in 601 or possibly 600 BC. Most of the interaction which Jeremiah had with the kings of Judah, notably with Zedekiah, came only a few years later than this, as Zedekiah came to rule in 598 or 597 B.C., and most of the prophecy of Jeremiah is written from 598 B.C. down to the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred most likely in 586. Yahweh's reply to the cries of Habakkuk continue, verse 8, their horses also are swifter than the leopards, and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves, and their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to the sea. I'm sorry, that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind, and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. Britain's Septuagint has verse 9 to read, Destruction shall come upon ungodly men, resisting with their adverse front. And he, ostensibly referring to the Chaldeans, shall gather the captivity as the sand. The authorized standard version may be the better rendering. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. Thus, where the King James Version has gathered the captivity, 
This forebodes not those already taken captive by the Assyrians. This foretells that a great number of Judahites would be taken captive to Babylon when the Babylonians come against Jerusalem. And they shall scoff at the kings, describing this Babylonian army. And they shall scoff at the kings, and the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. And the Septuagint may be a little more descriptive. And he shall be at ease of his kings, and princes are his toys. Meaning that the Chaldeans are given total control over the Mesopotamian world. And he shall mock at every stronghold and shall cast a mound and take possession of it. No city is going to stand against the Chaldeans. That's the word of God here. The children of Judah and Jerusalem will not be able to stand against the Chaldeans and they will be quite easily conquered. Then, shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and defend, imputing this his power unto his God. Perhaps one day soon we shall give a study of this in correlation with the years of Nebuchadnezzar's madness described in the prophet Daniel. That's not our intent to do that tonight, but that should be noted here that this very well may correlate to that time of Nebuchadnezzar's madness in Daniel. The Septuagint has the end of this verse to read, saying, this strength belongs to my God. Here the word of Yahweh instructs us that the pride of the Chaldeans shall be their own downfall in exchange for what they were given to do to Judah. In order to illustrate the pride of the Chaldeans, the attitudes of the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, which are described here, by the prophet at this very time. The following is from an inscription of the book of Nezar II, the king of the Chaldeans when Jerusalem was taken, who ruled Babylon from 605 all the way down to 562 BC. This inscription is called the Wadi Brisa inscription, parts of which are missing or damaged, like most inscriptions. It was first published in German in 1906, and of course this English translation is from ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament from page 307. And the beginning of Tablet 9 has some lines missing, so it starts from the upper sea to the lower sea, and there's a line missing, which Marduk my Lord has entrusted to me, I have made the city of Babylon to be the foremost among all the countries and every human habitation. Its name I have elevated to the most worthy of praise among the sacred cities, the sanctuaries of my Lords Nebo and Marduk as a wise ruler. And then there's a break, and we see the attitude expressed in Habakkuk, 
that his mind shall change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing this his power. His ability to conquer the world was imputed to Marduk, who was an idol. And Yahweh is saying that that's the source of his sin, his idolatry, as well as his pride. The inscription continues, and, and this is also very relevant to the prophecy of Habakkuk. And the book of Nezar, the inscription says, at that time, the Lebanon, the Cedar Mountain, the luxurious forest of Marduk, the smell of which is sweet, the high cedars of which its product another god has not desired, which no other king has felled. And of course, <laughs> the book of Nezar seems oblivious to the history of Solomon, David, and Hiram of Tyre. My Nabu, Nabu being an untranslated word, they probably aren't certain of the meaning of, my Nabu, Marduk, had desired as a fitting adornment for the palace of the ruler of heaven and earth. So Nebuchadnezzar, in his inscription, is calling himself the ruler of heaven and earth. This Lebanon, over which a foreign enemy was ruling and robbing it of its riches. Its people were scattered, had fled to a faraway region. Sounds like the Israelites to the deportations. Thrusting in the power of my Lord, I'm sorry, trusting in the power of my lords, Nebo and Marduk, I organized my army for an expedition to the Lebanon. I made that country happy by eradicating its enemy everywhere. All its scattered inhabitants I led back to their settlements. What no former king had done I achieved. I cut through steep mountains. I split rocks, opened passages, and thus I constructed a straight road for the transport of the cedars. I made the Aratu float, the Aratu, that word is untranslated. I made the Aratu float down and carried to Marduk, my king, mighty cedars, high and strong, of precious beauty, and of excellent dark quality, the abundant yield of the Lebanon, as if they be reed stalks carried by the river. Within Babylon, I stored mulberry wood. I made the inhabitants of the Lebanon live in safety together and let nobody disturb them. In order that nobody might do any harm to them, I erected there a stella showing me as everlasting king of this region and built, and, and it gets lost after that. There's some ellipses and scattered words. The violence of Lebanon, in reference to the Chaldeans, is referred to in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 17, as one of the issues which Yahweh has against the book of Nezar. Evidently, the book of Nezar here considered the inhabitants of other lands, specifically Lebanon, to be the enemies of those lands. And in that manner, he himself could justify 
using the natural resources of those lands for his own gain. Sort of sounds like globalism. In the next portion of the inscription, the Book of Nessar reflects the attitude that if successor kings keep his will, then they will be blessed in turn. This, begin, this is Tablet 10, and there are some beginning lines, once again, which are destroyed. Beside my statue, as king, I wrote an inscription mentioning my name. I erected for posterity. May future kings respect the monuments, remember the praise of the gods inscribed thereupon. He who respects my royal name, who does not abrogate my statutes. The Book of Nezar feels that he could make laws which stand beyond his own time, so he must be God, right? And not change my decrees. His throne shall be secure. Yahweh says to his kings, if you keep my laws, your throne will be secure. The Book of Nezar is taking this role upon himself in this inscription. So he's elevating himself to a position higher than man. His life lasts long. His dynasty shall continue. Rain from the sky, flood water from the interior of the earth shall be given to him continually as a present. He himself shall rule peacefully and in abundance. O Marduk, my lord, do remember my deeds favorably as good deeds. May these my good deeds be always before your mind, so that my walking in Esagila and Ezida, they were sacred precincts in Babylon, which I love, may last to old age. May I remain always your legitimate governor. May I pull your yoke till I am sated with my progeny. May my name be remembered in future days in a good sense. May my offspring rule forever over the black-headed. And that term black-headed certainly isn't what it appears to be. Since from the various inscriptions in which it appears, the term black-headed people can be determined to have nothing to do with any particular race. I have two possible theories of its meaning. The first relates to the Greek poet Homer's use of a similar term, where he called the people of Egypt and the Levant and Arabia, he called them the sunburnt races. The second theory lies in the fact that the people of Cush were the leaders of the early Sumerian empires, the early Sumerian culture. Nimrod, of course, being a son of Cush, and the word Cush means black. Neither theory is fully developed, and I need more study in order to prove them out for, for right or wrong. But we hear a lot of... Um, really insipid and uneducated remarks about these black-headed people that perhaps they um, 
were Negroes or something crazy like that. And it's simply ridiculous. They were definitely white, for the most part, white descendants of Noah. Many of them were um, partially white, partially Adamic descendants of Cain and the Rephaim. In another inscription of the same period, five sons of the king of Judah are mentioned several times, indicating that they were hostages in Babylon already when the book of Nezar had written these inscriptions, and they were in care of the palace. Habakkuk responds to Yahweh's answer. Yahweh had answered Habakkuk in verses 5 through 11. Now it's Habakkuk's turn to respond to Yahweh, this being. A dialogue. Art thou not from everlasting, O Yahweh my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Yahweh, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. The prophet pleads for the survival of the people of Judah with the exclamation, we shall not die. He then makes a statement which is also a plea for assurance, hoping that the Chaldeans are only being raised up against Judah for the judgment and correction of the disobedient nation. Being corrected, Israel is not destroyed, but rather should be compelled to do the will of God. This reflects the belief of the prophet that the role of Israel in the world is by compulsion and that ultimately Israel has no choice but to serve God. When Israel is disobedient, Israel is punished into obedience in the hope of the prophet. Nations other than Israel cannot choose for themselves to replace Israel. Nations other than Israel are only used to punish Israel when Israel is disobedient. This is a lesson taught throughout Old Testament scripture. And of course, if we read the revelation in the words of Jesus Christ, Yahshua Christ, we will see that nothing about that has changed. The prophet continues, Thou art of purer eyes, and to behold evil, and cannot look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devour the man that is more righteous than he? Habakkuk tells us in poetic language that Yahweh God is so pure and good that he should not have to look upon the sins of men. But while he has already pled for justice against the wicked, and that the nation not be entirely destroyed, here Habakkuk asks even further of Yahweh why he would permit whatever righteous people are left in Judah to suffer at the hands of the wicked, by which he means to describe the armies of the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk continues and makes man as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. 
In his earlier answer to the prophet, Yahweh had said in verse 9 that the Chaldeans would gather the captivity of sand. Here, the prophet is using the analogy of fish and nets to describe the promised gathering of Judah as captives, further asking why Yahweh would permit such a thing. Habakkuk then describes the injustice of such captors. Verse 15, they take up all of them with the angle. They catch them in their net, men as fishes, right? And gather them in their drag. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice unto their net and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations? The prophet is describing the Chaldeans, who Yahweh had said would take many captives of Judah. And the prophet is contending as to why this should be, since the Chaldeans themselves <clears throat> were unrighteous idolaters, even worshipping the nets by which they would catch men. Habakkuk then asserts that the Chaldeans have enriched themselves by the conquest of other nations, and therefore they shall not cease from their pillage. Habakkuk chapter 2 opens in verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon a tower, and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. Habakkuk contends with Yahweh God here through the end of chapter 1. And here in chapter 2, he portrays himself as if waiting for an answer from God to come to him. That happens in the next verse. And Yahweh answered me and said, Write in the vision and make it plain upon tables or upon tablets, that he may run that reads it. Here is the answer Habakkuk awaited, and it reflects Yahweh's resolve. The vision which the prophet is about to receive should put fear into the hearts of those who hear it. However, the answer in the vision which we are about to see, is twofold. One aspect tells the prophet that the people of Israel, especially those who follow after the deeds of the wicked, will indeed suffer the decreed punishment. But the other aspect assures the, the prophet that the Chaldeans will in turn indeed be punished. From verse 3, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. But at the end, it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. The fulfillment shall prove that the prophecy is true, although it shall not be manifest immediately. However, Habakkuk prophesied 
no later than 608 B.C. I'm sorry, no earlier than 608 B.C. And no later than 601 B.C. Then concerning Judah, this prophecy was fulfilled within 22 to 15 years of his writing by 586 B.C. Babylon, in turn, fell to the Persians, most likely in 539 B.C. Verse 4, so it took that long for Habakkuk's prophecy to be completely fulfilled. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. This passage is quoted by Paul of Tarsus in his epistle to the Romans. Because of confusion over which entity the pronouns are referencing, as they are found in translations of the Hebrew to both the Greek and the Septuagint and to the English in the modern versions, some of the passages in English seem confusing. We shall attempt to sort that out after we present verse 5. Paul of Tarsus, in chapter 1 of his epistle to the Romans, had quoted the second half of this verse in reference to the idolatry and the sinful men of Rome. However, Paul also used the statement in the context of the wrath of God, where he said, Truly, I am not ashamed of the good message, for it is the ability of Yahweh to guarantee preservation to all who have faith, both to the Judean at the beginning and then to the Greek. The righteousness of Yahweh, I'm sorry, the righteousness of Yahweh is revealed in them from trust in faith, just as it is written, but the just will live by faith. If you have faith, if you're of the faith, and if you live, the righteousness of Yahweh is revealed in you. And then he says, for the wrath of Yahweh is revealed from heaven upon all profane and unjust men who withhold the truth with injustice. That being set aside momentarily, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5. Yeah, also, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, neither keeps at home, who enlarges his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathers unto him all nations and heaps unto him all people. Today that could be said of, of Wall Street bankers, of Rothschilds. In verse 3, the Septuagint mostly agrees with the King James Version, but in the final clauses, rather than the pronoun it, we see the pronoun he. In any event, the reference must be to the promise that the Chaldeans would come and take Judah captive. In verse 4, where it says in the King James Version, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. The Septuagint has 
if he should draw back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We see the pronoun confusion there. The Septuagint translation seems to be a poor interpretation of the words of the prophet in their original Hebrew, since the copies of Habakkuk found in the Dead Sea Scrolls thoroughly support the reading of the Masoretic text. A better rendering of the Hebrew of verse 4 is found in the New Revised Standard Translation, which says, Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faith. This is a warning that the Chaldeans are mean-spirited and proud, but that those who are righteous and faithful in Judah shall survive the judgment of Yahweh being executed through the hands of the Chaldeans. With this, we see that Habakkuk used the exclamation in the same sense that Paul of Tarsus had later quoted it. It must not be forgotten that in verse 11 of Habakkuk chapter 1, we see that the first offense of the Chaldeans was to impute their power to their own god, which is an idol, when their power had actually come from the god of Israel, as they were only raised up to be a scourge for Israel. Here in verse 5, we have further reference to the injustice and the pride of the Chaldeans, and as they are successful in conquering nations, that their thirst for conquest would not be satisfied. Therefore, they are portrayed as having heaped unto themselves all nations and people. This is the same attitude we see reflected in the Book of Nezar's own inscriptions, which we had presented earlier. Verse 6 shall not all these, things, all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him and say woe to him that increases that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. It is the nations which the Chaldeans had conquered who are being portrayed here as taking up this proverb, this parable, forecasting the fall of the Babylonians. Verse 7, Shall they not rise up suddenly that bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them? Those who will destroy the Babylonians shall rise up suddenly, meaning that they will become powerful rather quickly. From the popular archaeological chronologies, it was apparently 11 years from the time that Cyrus the Great became king of the Persians to the time when he conquered Babylon. This is, of course, the Cyrus of the prophecy of Isaiah chapters 44 and 45. Verse 8, because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of men's blood and for the violence of the land, of the city, 
and of all that dwell therein. Those who remain of the nations which Babylon has conquered shall in turn conquer and spoil the Babylonians. This happened when the Persians rose up under Cyrus. Interestingly, the Babylonians themselves had been a party to the federation of nations which had destroyed the Assyrians, each of whom had also been conquered by Assyria. Under Nebuchadnezzar, they in turn immediately followed the pattern of the Assyrians. But while they were rapidly successful, their own hegemony, hegemony lasted only for about 66 years, from 605 to 539 B.C. Verse 9, Habakkuk chapter 2, Woe to him that covets an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. And, and this is all in spirit with answering the book of Nezar's own boasts in the inscriptions which he himself had made when he conquered Lebanon. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and has sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. Woe to him that builds a town with blood and establishes a city by iniquity. Many great cities have been built on mercantilism. However, all great empires have been built at the expense of others upon blood. For this will Babylon be judged, because, as verse 5 says, the Chaldean cannot be satisfied, but gathers unto him all nations, and heaps unto him all people. Verse 13, Behold, is it not Yahweh of hosts, that the people shall labor? Is it not of Yahweh of hosts, that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for vanity? Only Yahweh God should rule his king over his creation. Yet from the time of Nimrod, men sought to conquer and maintain control over their fellow man. The book of Nezar is only following after Nimrod. It was from this mess that the children of Israel were delivered to be the servant, the servant race of God that he may show man that only he can justly be their king. In the end, Yahweh, incarnate as Yahshua Christ, shall indeed be sole king over all Adam kind. And until then, men suffer these fiery trials because all of their own designs are vanity. There is a verse very similar to this one in Jeremiah 51:58, which is also a prophecy against Babylon. For this reason, and, and we will read that section of Jeremiah. For this reason, 
the children of Israel were chosen to establish Yahweh's kingdom on earth. And Paul explains to the other Adamic nations in Acts chapter 14 that we preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations, meaning all of those other Adamic nations, to walk in their own ways. The people to whom Paul had spoken those things in that chapter of Acts were Lycaonians. They were Japhethites. They were not Israelites. It is vanity for man to pursue his own ways rather than to submit to God in obedience to his word. When men try to build a society apart from God, they labor in the fire because they are punished for it by God. Ostensibly, it is for this reason that all of the Adamic nations have been punished and the remnant of the children of Israel have been used as an example in history. Men do not readily learn the lessons because they cannot ever identify the parties. In Christ, all Adamic men shall ultimately understand. Here, there seems to be a transition in the scope of the prophecy, and it shifts slowly to the immediate application concerning Judah and the Chaldeans to a broader scope that is also relevant to the fall of the mystery Babylon, of the revelation, especially where Habakkuk continues. And verse 14 says, For the earth, this is still Yahweh's answer to Habakkuk's plea, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. This never happened after the Babylonian deportations. Even when all of Judah, captive in Babylon, had the opportunity to return for the reestablishment of Judea in the time of the Persians, only 42,000 or so had chosen to return, which is evident in the opening chapters of the book of Ezra. Since this has not happened yet, this prophecy in, chapter, in verse 14. We anticipate it, as Jeremiah 31 promises, with the fall of mystery Babylon, as we await the fulfillment of the words of Christ in Revelation chapter 18. And this helps to substantiate the dual nature of Habakkuk's prophecy of this particular chapter. Woe unto him that gives his neighbor drink, that puts the bottle to him and makes him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. The understanding of what this drunkenness is can be realized in the prophecy made against Babylon in the writings of Jeremiah just a few years after this prophecy by Habakkuk. And we will quote it from Jeremiah chapter 51, from verse 47. Therefore, behold, the days come, 
that I will do judgment upon the graven images of Babylon, and her whole land shall be confounded, and all her slain shall fall in the midst of her. Then the heaven and the earth and all that is therein shall sing for Babylon, for the spoilers shall come unto her from the north, saith Yahweh. As Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon shall fall the slain of all the earth. Ye that have escaped the sword, go away. Stand not still. Remember Yahweh afar off, and let Jerusalem come into your mind. This is a reference to the captivity of Israel, who were to depart from that captivity and to go afar off. That's Christian identity, right? We are confounded because we have heard reproach. Shame has covered our faces. For strangers are come into the sanctuaries of Yahweh's house. Wherefore, behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will do judgment upon her graven images, and through all her land the wounded shall groan. Though Babylon should mount up the heaven, and though she should fortify the height of her strength, yet from me shall spoilers come into her, saith Yahweh. A sound of a cry cometh from Babylon, and great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans. Because Yahweh has spoiled Babylon, and destroyed out of her the great voice, when her waves do roar like great waters." a noise of their voices uttered, because the spoiler has come upon her, even upon Babylon, and her mighty men are taken, every one of their bows is broken, for Yahweh God of recompenses shall surely requite, and I will make drunk her princes. Here's the most relevant passage to this part of Habakkuk, even though this entire prophecy of Jeremiah parallels and expounds on the prophecy in Habakkuk. And I will make drunk her princes and her wise men, her captains and her rulers, and her mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, saith the king whose name is Yahweh of hosts. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon shall utterly be broken, and her high gates shall be burned with fire, and the people shall labor in vain, and the folk in the fire, and they shall be weary. And we see the same toil of fire here of the people of Babylon, that we see earlier here in Habakkuk of the people of Israel. And the same drunkenness of the rulers of the people of Babylon mentioned here as mentioned in Jeremiah. We see in Paul in Romans chapter 11, described in the words of the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of slumber which Yahweh God sends upon men ostensibly so that man, wise in his own devices, is blind to the punishment which he is about to receive for his sins. This 
Drunkenness must therefore be allegorical drunkenness, describing the blindness of men who deceive one another in their own conceit, while God has plans for them that are quite different from what they must ex- from what they must expect. The drunkenness of pride, the drunkenness of conceit that leads to the blindness of the evils about to come upon you. This is also relevant for the end of these days when we expect the fall of mystery Babylon. Today we have world leaders who think they have everything under control. We have a media and entertainment industry which, in conjunction with organized religions that follow its lead, function as agencies for those world leaders and make men drunk with lies and their nakedness shall ultimately be uncovered. Verse 16. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of Yahweh's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. Let thy foreskin be uncovered. The Babylonians were among the uncircumcised who were outside of the covenants and promises of God, and they would therefore be consumed. The cup of Yahweh's right hand is the same cup of wrath we read of for Babylon the Great in Revelation chapter 16, which also serves to substantiate the dual nature of Habakkuk's prophecy. It had application to ancient to ancient Babylon and it has application to the coming fall of mystery Babylon. It says in Revelation chapter sixteen, verse nineteen, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Verse 17. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Earlier, earlier this evening, we had seen in the inscriptions of Nebuchadnezzar that he himself had bragged of his conquest of Lebanon. And the words of Yahweh by the prophet here must be referring to that same thing. Here, it may be observed that one of the very reasons why Yahweh has an issue with the Chaldeans is also one of the very things which Nebuchadnezzar had bragged about in the inscriptions that he made. Now, of course, the prophet could not have known about the inscriptions 
and Nebuchadnezzar could not have known about the prophet. The violence of Lebanon is made an example of the sins of the Babylonians against the remnant of Israel. There were still some Israelites strewn throughout the land. This is a remarkable proof of the veracity of Habakkuk's prophecy, because the Hebrew prophet could, have, could not have known before time that the book of Nezar's boasting of his consque- conquest of Lebanon would be dug out of the ground 2,500 years after the fact, or even that we, at these, this extreme time, would be considering his own words, the words of Habakkuk. Verse 18. What profit, the graven image, what profits the graven image that the maker thereof has graven it, the molted image and the teacher of lies that the maker of his work trusts therein to make dumb idols. Woe unto him that saith to the wood, awake, and to the dumb stone, arise and shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. We have just seen in the prophecy of Jeremiah where Yahweh had further chastised the Babylonians for their idolatry. In Jeremiah 51:47, where it says, Therefore, behold, the days come that I will do judgment upon the graven images of Babylon, and her whole land shall be confounded, and all her slain shall fall in the midst of her. While the Babylonians were outside of the covenants of Abraham and Israel, the Chaldeans and some of the other tribes of ancient Sumer were nevertheless of the wider Adamic race, which was also being judged by Yahweh God for their idolatry, as Paul explains to the Athenians in part in Acts chapter 17. These end the words of Yahweh in reply to the query of Habakkuk. The last line seems to be a conclusion written by the prophet himself, and the word but may better have been translated as now, and I would read it now, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The destruction of ancient Babylon, not long after Habakkuk made these pronouncements, is proof that the God of Israel is God indeed. For this reason, men should fear him, because he has established himself through his prophets. There's no doubt. This is the end of the dialogue between Yahweh and the prophet Habakkuk, but it is not the end of the message of the prophecy, which in chapter 3 is continued in a song, and I'm not going to sing it.
a song which was evidently composed by the prophet for the singers and the musicians in the temple in Jerusalem. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigianoth. Now, perhaps a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, for Shigianoth may have been a better rendering of the preposition, since the word Shigianoth evidently describes a poetic style, a style of song. As we explained in the the introduction to this prophecy, Shigianoth is said to mean a wild, passionate song with rapid changes of rhythm. And verse 2 is where it begins. O Yahweh, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Yahweh, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in in wrath, remember mercy. The prophet opens his song as a response to the words which he had heard in chapter 2, where Yahweh described to him the judgment to come upon Judah and then also upon Babylon. By the term, thy work, the prophet alludes to the kingdom of God represented by Judah and Jerusalem, expressing the hope that it would be built anew at some point following its coming destruction. The prophet has accepted the words of Yahweh concerning the coming judgment upon Judah and now pleads that God be merciful when executing that judgment. And the next verse is, well, very much misunderstood. God came from Timon, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Here, Habakkuk seems to borrow poetic language from the Song of Moses, found in Deuteronomy chapter 33, where it says, Yahweh came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. However, while the language is similar, the meaning does not necessarily have to be similar to that of Moses. It certainly is not. Some supposed scholars claim that since Timon is to the east, therefore God is being compared here to the rising sun, as the following verse describes the brightness of God being as the light of day. However, the word Timon, Strong's 8487, means south, not east, as it was often clearly used in contrast to points north, and also to the points east and west. So it certainly does not mean east. Taman was a city of the Edomites, who were situated to the south of Judah. Paran, mentioned here in his verse, Mount Paran. Paran was also in the south, 
And that name apparently means place of caverns. And it was near the desert of Sinai. There are references in the writings of Moses to the wilderness of Paran. Deuteronomy chapter 1 lists Paran, along with several other places, as being near the plain over against the Red Sea. Today's archaeologists, biblical and otherwise, profess uncertainty as to the location of ancient Teman. Often, it is associated with a place called Mayan in modern Jordan, which is just northeast of the Gulf of Aqaba, a branch of the Red Sea, a finger, if you will. However, there is little reason which prevents Teman from being associated with Tema or Tema, which is to the east of the Red Sea in modern Saudi Arabia. The city Tema was prominent in the Babylonian period, and it was an important hub of the caravan routes between Egypt, Babylonia, and the Levant, Judea, Syria, Palestine. And the Babylonians kept a large garrison of troops in Timah. During the rule of Nabonidus, it served as a sort of second capital. Nabonidus was the king right after the Book of Nezar, or in fact, I think, the second king after the Book of Nezar. There was another one in there for a short period of time. During the reign of Nabonidus, he spent 10 years of his rule in Tamar, only returning to Babylon a short time before the Persian conquest. During his absence from Babylon, his son Belshazzar, who is known to us from the book of Daniel, exercised rule over the city. Much of this was recorded in Babylonian inscriptions and can be seen in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament on pages 305 through page 315, where the prophecy of Amos says in its opening verses, that Yahweh cometh forth out of his place. It is an allegory portraying the Assyrians by whom Yahweh was about to bring judgment upon Israel. Where Isaiah chapter 30 says that the name of Yahweh <clears throat> comes from afar, burning with his anger. It is an allegory of the judgment that would come upon the Assyrians themselves at the hand of all the nations which gathered against them. Likewise, in Isaiah chapter 26, where we read in the final verse of the chapter that Yahweh comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. <clears throat> That's an allegory. Therefore, it is likely here that where it says that God came from Teman, it is an indication 
that the judgment coming upon Judah was going to be executed from Taman. If Taman was Tamar, then we know that there was a famous city which was used to garrison troops. Whether the Babylonian troops came from Timon in 586 BC or not, Timon was still an Edomite city, and later scriptures tell us that the Edomites, who at the time were also vassals to the Babylonians, played a significant part in the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple of Yahweh. Psalm 137 was written during the captivity, and it says in verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yeah, we wept when we remembered Zion. And then in verse 7 it says, Remember, O Yahweh, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. And then, clarifying Psalm 137, we read in the apocryphal version of the book of Ezra, which is actually a better version of Ezra than what we have, which is called one Esdras in the Septuagint, Ezra describes, says that the Persian king in chapter 4, Verse 45, thou hast also vowed to build up the temple, which the Edomites burned when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees. So God coming from Timon indicates to us that this judgment against Jerusalem would be executed from the land of Edomia, and perhaps from Tema, which was a garrison of troops, where there was garrisons of troops. Now, there may also, in addition to that interpretation, there may also be a corresponding and valid mythological representation made in this verse. And it is a song, so it is written with allegorical language. The ancient symbol of the phoenix. is portrayed very clearly in Malachi chapter 4, where we read, But unto you that fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Now, of course, that's also a reference, a messianic reference to Christ, but it's still a portrayal of the ancient symbol of the phoenix. According to Book 2 of the Histories of Herodotus, where he describes the legend of the phoenix, the bird arises in Arabia, which is to the south of Judah. So perhaps that is another literary component 
of the picture being drawn by the words of the prophet here, because they did indeed use such literary components in their writing all the time, even if we, in, in another time and culture, do not understand them all. Verse 4. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was Yahweh displeased against the rivers? Was mine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea, that thou did ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Now, salvation is evidently not salvation for everyone. For here it is seen in the destruction of men and nations. Just as the prophecy in chapter 2 first told of judgment upon Judah, and then in turn upon Babylon, here the prophet in his song seems to turn from one to the other in that same manner. Jerusalem was judged, but then Yahweh was angry and displeased against the rivers and against the sea, which are the other nations of the world. Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Salah. Thou did cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice, and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. And it's ostensibly evident that the mountains and rivers represent nations and races. In other prophecies, Revelation chapter 6 comes to mind, the sun and moon represent worldly governments, either godly or fleshly. Thou did march through the land in indignation. Thou did thresh the heathen in anger. And the word for heathen is the same word usually translated as nations. And it should probably be nations in at least most of the places where it appears. The conquering army, seen as a judgment from God, are portrayed allegorically as being a facet of God himself. God is portrayed by the prophet to be doing these things, but really it is these Babylonian armies which would do these things as he had decreed. And then in turn, the Persian armies which would do them to Babylon. When thou wentest forth 
for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation under the neck. So ah, thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Even in their captivity, Israel and Judah would be preserved in the destruction of all those who had destroyed them. The head of the wicked must refer to the throne of Babylon. However, the prophecy in chapter 2, as well as the song here in chapter 3, in these, there is application to the future mystery Babylon as well. The allegorical reference to the wounding of the head can be associated with Genesis 3.15, where of the seed of the woman, it is said to the serpent, that it shall bruise thy head. Verse 15. Thou did walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. The horses did not walk through the seas. Rather, these are allegories. The seas and waters represent the masses of people in large and small nations. The horses, the implements of war, walked through the sea and through the heaps of great waters to destroy the Babylonians. In the end of the Revelation, it is said that with the new heaven and the new earth, there shall be no more sea. And thereafter, the only people mentioned are the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, who are also the city of God come down from heaven. Verse 16, When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up under the people, he will invade them with his troops. Habakkuk is pained to think of the judgment which is ordained to come upon the people. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. And even with all of this pain, the prophet remains faithful to his God, saying, Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Yahweh God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hind's feet. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. Now, the Septuagint does not interpret the last phrase to be an instruction for the choir or the orchestra, but rather as a part of the message 
And the Septuagint has verse 19 to read. Yahweh God is my strength, and he will perfectly strengthen my feet. He mounts me upon high places that I may conquer by his song. And the Latin of the Vulgate agrees. In any event, it's clear from the opening verses of Habakkuk chapter 3 that the song was meant for the musicians in the temple. That is the conclusion to our presentation of the prophecy of Habakkuk. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night with Martin Luther, The Devil in Luther's Dreams, Part 3. Good night. Thank you.